Good evening. My name is Ed Crane. I'm president of the Cato Institute, and I'd like to welcome you to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium for our uh, book forum uh, this evening. Um, P.G. O'Rourke is the H.L. Mencken Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, this is an important position at the Cato Institute, not least because it is unpaid. Uh, <laughs> Um, he is also, uh, and he earns every penny of it, he is he's also the author of a terrific new book, Don't Vote, It Just Encourages the Bastards. I should note that the book is available for sale and autograph after PJ's um, speech. It's available on Amazon and all the rest of that sort of thing. Um, Cato has worked out a deal with the publisher to make it available tonight for you at retail. Uh, <laughs> uh, if I may editorialize for a moment before introducing PJ, the title of the book may or may uh, not be intended to be taken seriously, but one thing is certain, while the Universal, uh, uh, the universal franchise is, is of course important, um, it's there under our constitutional system uh, primarily as a vehicle to throw the bums out. Uh, we really shouldn't have to stay up until uh, 3 a.m. wringing our hands over who got elected to the Senate, much less who got elected to the House. Uh, if we take the Constitution seriously, uh, as it appears many in the Tea Party movement do, um, it shouldn't be that big a deal who gets elected. Uh, because our elected officials should have very little power over the rest of us. As Madison put it, uh, the powers of the federal government are few and well-defined. On the other hand, that great uh, constitutional authority and 19-term congressman from California, Pete Stark, uh, said at a town hall meeting in August this year, quote, I think there are very few constitutional limits that would prevent the federal government from rules that could affect your private life. The federal government, yes, can do most anything in this country. So, with Madison, the vote's not that important. With Stark, uh, maybe so. But back to uh, PJ's bio. With a more than a million words of trenchant journalism under his byline, did you write this? I don't know what uh, Ed. I don't know what trenchant means. Uh, <laughs> so no. Yeah, I should have. I should have known that. Uh, PJ has more citations in the Penguin Dictionary of Humorous Quotations than any other living writer, which is impressive. But you know, if you think about it, um, in the unlikely event that PJ passes away, he'll drop instantly out of the top ten of the deceased humorous quotations, uh, which is kind of a not, not a very pleasant thing to think about. Anyway, I digress. Uh, P.J. was born in Toledo, Ohio, which is um, in the Midwest, and attended the University of Miami at, in Oxford, Ohio, where he became uh, a near Marxist. Uh, he then went to earn a master's degree in English at the Johns Hopkins University, where being a Marxist was no big deal. In the early uh, 70s, he joined National Lampoon magazine, where he eventually became editor-in-chief. In the 1980s, he decided the real world was funnier than anything Lampoon editors could come up with, 
so he became a roving international reporter for Rolling Stone magazine. PJ is the author of some 15 books, many of which are terrific and some so-so. Uh, <laughs> among the good to great ones are Holidays in Hell, Republican Party Reptile, Parliament of Horrors, Eat the Rich, and On the Wealth of Nations. And if you don't think making Adam Smith funny is uh, difficult, you should try it sometime. Anyway, uh, Don't Vote, It Just Encourages the Bastards is one of PJ's best, if not the best uh, book. I really encourage you to, uh, to buy it. It's not just hilarious, it contains some of the most insightful public choice and public policy analysis available anywhere. I've always maintained that the leading humorists of our time often are the most insightful social and political commentators as well. Uh, think of Samuel Clemens, Will Rogers, H.L. Mencken, and now P.G. O'Rourke. Please welcome my good friend and the H.L. Mencken Research Fellow at Cato, Patrick Jake O'Rourke. Well, thank you all for, for coming out, and uh, I, I appreciate it. I know that some of you probably felt like you should be home laying down with a cold compress on your head after President Obama's 1 p.m. press conference. Certainly left me with a headache. Um, we lost that election last night, you know, uh, and I don't say that just because uh, Republicans didn't take the Senate, you know, or uh, uh, we, we lost that election because uh, almost every political contest yesterday was won by a politician. Yeah. Uh, a couple of cases, angry nuts won, which is uh, an improvement over politicians, but, but it's really, it's just not good enough. Now, I will not be satisfied until every seat in the House and Senate is filled by a regular person, a regular person who quite reasonably hates being there. I want government to be like jury duty. And not jury duty for some exciting crime like the O.J. Simpson murder, you know I mean? I, I, I want government to be like jury duty for a long, boring, complex, confusing trial concerning tax law. In fact, let me suggest indicting our federal tax code, just for starts, uh, which is nothing but fraud. I want government to be dull, a dull and onerous responsibility like attending a parent-teacher conference, you know, something that, that to be undertaken with weary reluctance because good citizenship requires it, you know. I, I want every congressman, every senator, every president, every Supreme Court justice to be wishing, longing, begging to go back to his or her real job in real life. I want them hoping and pleading to be allowed to return to their private interests and personal avocations. I want them yearning to be sitting in front of the TV with a beer, watching Ed Crane lose money on his World Series bets. I want our elected officials to say that they intend to spend more time with their families and mean it. Mean it, you know. We will know when we have won an election. We will know when we've won an election 
when every single candidate who is voted into office begins his or her victory speech by saying, oh, shit. <laughs> no. Now, I'm working on a, uh, 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 in, in this new book on a new theory of political science. And instead of basing my theory on the work of deep political thinkers such as John Locke and Tom Paine, John Stuart Mill and Ed Crane, uh, I, I'm basing my theory on a dumb game played at uh, all-night giggle sessions in girls' boarding schools. My wife told me about this. Game's called Kill, Screw, Marry. Now, what, what, what happens is that the girls pick three men, and, and, and they go around the room, and every girl has to decide which one of the three uh, she would kill, which one she'd screw, and which one she would settle down for life and raise a family, right? Now, I think the example my wife gave when she was telling me about this was, uh, I think she, the, she, her example was Conan O'Brien, David Letterman, Jay Leno. Uh, you know, the girls could do like NBC did, kill Conan, and uh, 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 screw Letterman, all the other interns did, and, 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 and marry Jay Leno, right? And I'm laughing, but then it struck me, kill, screw, marry, that's politics. That's how we pick the president of the United States. Now, take his example, 1992 presidential election. George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Ross Perot. We kill Ross Perot, you know. We could hardly avoid a screw from Bill Clinton. And we marry kindly old George H.W. Bush. Now, of course, the outcome of the game is not, not always a foregone conclusion. Witness our mysterious elopement with Bill instead of our walk down the aisle with George. Case of the 2000 presidential election, America was pretty much evenly divided about whether to screw George W. or get screwed by Al Gore, although I think we all agreed on killing Ralph Nader. Um, I won't venture any examples from more recent elections for fear of attracting uh, attention from the Secret Service, hard as that sometimes seems to be in the Obama White House. But anyway, <laughs> kill, screw, Mary, uh, it, it just got me thinking. The game works on the parts of government, too. You know, you kill the Postal Service, get in bed with FEMA housing, marry the armed forces. Same for government policies. Screw agricultural subsidies, marry Social Security, and health care reform kills us. I mean, kill, screw, marry. It's a great tool of political analysis because in a free and democratic country, politics is a sort of a, sort of a three-legged stool. You know, it's, it, politics balanced upon a tripod of power, freedom, and responsibility, kill, screw, marry. And we live in a, a free and, and democratic country, um, a little less democratic than it was before last night, which is fine with me. Um, also, kill, screw, marry is a great tool of political analysis because we're so passionate about our politics. And how do passionate affairs end? Uh, in a passion, usually, in a crime of passion sometimes. And occasionally they turn into stable, permanent legal arrangements, which is to say the endless peevish quarrel known as marriage. So how do we approach the political institutions of our free and democratic country? Do we overthrow them with violence? Do we screw around cheating on them while they screw around cheating on us? Or do we try to build something that is lasting and boring, uh, worthy and annoying, uh, uh, marvelously virtuous, and at the same time dreadfully stifling, a marriage. You know? Power, freedom, responsibility, kill, screw, marry. Now, uh, when I first began to think about politics, when, when mastodons and Nixon roamed the earth, 
I was obsessed with the freedom, the, 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 the screw part of Kill Screw Mary. I, I had a messy idea of freedom back in those days, drinking bong water, you know. But, but, but I, had a, I had a tidy idea that freedom was the central issue of politics. Now, I loved politics. Uh, many young people do. Kids can spot a means of, of, of gain without merit. You know? uh, this, this, this may be the reason that professional politicians retain a certain youthful zest. Uh, Ted Kennedy was the boyo right down to his last aged, disease-wracked moment. You know? Now, I was wrong about the lovable nature of politics, but I was sure I was right about the preeminent place freedom should have in a political system. But... There are lots of definitions of free, 36 definitions of free in Webster's Third International Dictionary. Plenty of people are theoretically in favor of freedom. We are all but overrun with theoretical allies in freedom's cause. We have got collaborators in the fight for freedom that we don't even want. I mean, the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. It's the second to the last sentence of the Communist Manifesto, and there's a creepy echo of it in the refrain of Chris Christopherson's Me and Bobby McGee. Um, Mao announced letting 100 flowers blossom and 100 schools of thought contend is the policy. Half a million people died in that definition of freedom. And we should probably keep in mind that the original definition of the word free in English is not in bondage. The most meaningful thing about freedom is that mankind has a sickening history of slavery. Now, here in America, we have freedom because we have rights. But the same way we can get mixed up about freedom, we can get mixed up about our rights. There are two kinds of rights. Political scientists call them positive rights and negative rights. Sometimes we call them opportunities and privileges. I call them get out of here rights and gimme rights. Politicians are always telling us about our gimme rights, especially the politician we've got in the White House right now, as in gimme some health care insurance. You know? But, you know, our Bill of Rights doesn't mention any gimme rights. Our Bill of Rights is all about our freedom to say, I have got God guns and a big damn mouth, and if the jury finds me guilty, the judge will go my bail. You know? Now, this is a get-out-of-here right, our right to be left alone, our freedom from interference, usually from government, but also from our fellow citizens when they want us to sober up, quit yelling, put the gun down, and go back in the, in the trailer. You know? <laughs> Politicians don't like gimme here. They, they, do, they, they, they only like gimme rights. They do not like get-out-of-here rights. They don't like get-out-of-here rights because, for one thing, all legislators are being invited to get out of here. You know? And for another thing, strict adherence to get-out-of-here rights would leave little, little scope for legislation, something that legislators dearly love to do. Gimme rights, much more politically alluring. And this is how we find ourselves tempted with the right to education, the right to housing, right to a living wage, to oil spill, beach cleanup, high-speed internet access, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. You know? Now, politicians show no signs of e even knowing the difference between get out of here and gimme rights. And blinded by the dazzle of anything that makes them popular, they honestly may not be able to tell. 
But there is evidence that a confusion about these rights was originally presented to the public with malice aforethought. President Franklin Roosevelt's four freedoms appear to be, at first glance, as natural, as well-matched, as tidy of composition as those Norman Rockwell illustrations for them. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, freedom from fear. But notice how the beggar, number three, freedom from want, has slipped in among the more respectable members of the freedom family. Want what, we ask? Saying, as Roosevelt did, that we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms and that one of these freedoms is freedom from want, this was not an expression of generosity from Roosevelt. Declarations like freedom from want are never expressions of generosity. There were six million Jews in Europe who wanted nothing but a safe place to go. And where was Roosevelt there? When rights consist of special privileges and positive benefits, rights kill freedom. Wrong rights are the source of abusive political power. It's years before uh, I realized this, years after I first got interested in politics, before I realized the central issue of politics is power, not freedom. Kill, not screw. Now, only an idiot wouldn't have seen this, and, and, and I was one. Um, I wasn't alone. Liberals, moderates, even some conservatives consider the sweeping gimme rights created by half a century of social welfare programs to be extensions of freedom in the opportunity right sense. People were being given the opportunity to, you know, not starve to death. And that's not a purely evil way of looking at things. And not all the social welfare programs were bad. But the electorate, the candidates, and me, failed to properly scrutinize social welfare programs. It's not that we failed to examine whether the programs were needed or unneeded or well or poorly run. What we failed to look at was the enormous power being taken from people and given to politics. We let freedom be turned into power. F off and die, the politicians told us. And politicians are careless about promising gimme rights. They are cynical about delivering them. And gimme rights, in turn, are absurdly expandable. The government gives me the right to get married. This indicates I have a right to a good marriage. Otherwise, why bother giving that right to me? Now, my marriage is made a lot better by my children's right to daycare. So the brats aren't in my face all day, you know, being deprived of their right to a nurturing developmental environment. Every child has the right to a happy childhood. So I have the right to happy children. Richer children are happier. Give me some of Angelina Jolie's. The expense of all these rights makes politicians happy. They get to do the spending. Even get-out-of-here rights aren't free. They, they, they entail a military, a constabulary, a judiciary, and a considerable expenditure of patience by our neighbors when they want us to sober up and, and put the gun down and go back in the trailer. But gimme rights require no end of money, and money is the least of their cost. Every, every one of such rights means the transfer of goods and services from one group of citizens to another. Now, the first group of citizens loses those goods and services, but all citizens lose the power that must be given to a political authority to enforce that transfer. And we didn't, or we didn't want to, 
understand that power. And this is particularly true of people my age, of the baby boom. And it, it was obvious in the way we reacted when politicians attempted to use their power to limit our freedom by drafting us into the war in Vietnam. We fought the establishment by growing our hair long and dressing like circus clowns. You know? We're a pathetic bunch. And we're a pathetic bunch, and it didn't start with the Beatles' marijuana and the pill. I mean, recall the coonskin cap? I wore mine to school. Children of previous eras may have worn coonskin caps, but they had to eat the raccoons first. <laughs> Baby Boom's reluctance to pay attention to the real issues of power resulted from the fact that we had some. Freedom is power, you know. And when it came to freedom, we were full of it. We were the first middle-class majority generation in history. We had all the varieties of freedom that affluence provides, plus we had the other varieties of freedom provided by the relaxation of religious conviction, sexual morality, etiquette, and good taste. The institutions that enforce prudence and restraint, they had been through a world war, prohibition, depression, another world war, and Elvis. They were tired. And we were allowed to fall under the power of our freedoms, and we powered through them. Sixty years on, we are still at it, letting not age, satiety, tedium, or erectile dysfunction stand in our way. You know? And yet always at our back, we hear this nagging thought that with power comes responsibility. Kill, screw, marriage. And we don't want that. I mean, has there ever been a generation, a nation, a civilization more determined to evade responsibility? Well, yes, probably there has. Uh, the, the, the ancient Romans uh, sliced open animals and rummaged in their kidneys and livers trying to avoid owning up to the consequences of empire and toga parties. Uh, the, the, the Greeks were forever running off to hear the irresponsible babble of the Oracle of Delphi, the Larry King of her age. Uh, uh, maybe the Egyptians had an Oprah barge on the Nile where, 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 where deceased pharaohs could, could, could fall to pieces and promise to become better mummies, you know. I mean, I, nonetheless, the baby boom has an impressive record of blame-shifting, duty-shirking, unaccountability, and refusal to admit guilt or, better, to readily confess to every kind of guilt and then announce that we have moved on. A gigantic national not-my-fault project has been undertaken with heroic amounts of time, effort, and money devoted to psychology, psychotherapy, sociology, sociopaths, social work, social sciences, Scientology, science, chemistry, the brain, brain chemistry, serotonin uptake reinhibitors, inhibitions, sex, sex therapy, talk therapy, talk radio, talk radio personalities, personality disorders, drugs, drug-free school zones, Internet addiction, economics, the Fed, PMS, SATs, IQ, DNA, evolution, abortion, divorce, no-fault car insurance, the Democratic Party, and diagnosis of attention deficit disorder in small boys. When I started thinking about politics 40-some years ago, I shouldn't have been thinking mainly about freedom and power, about screwing and killing. I should have been thinking about that march down the church aisle responsibility. It is, of course, too late now. I'm, I'm a child of my era. And speaking of that era, uh, here are three slogans from three 1960s posters that never, ever existed. Sisterhood is responsible. Black responsibility. Responsibility to the people. 
I'm trying to imagine me and my bratty little friends out there on the barricades with our fists raised, yelling, responsibility to the people. You know? Now, it is our great good fortune that we, as libertarians, have a way out of that kill, screw, merry game of politics. Because we have realized that true freedom, true power, and true responsibility are individual matters. We know that the greatest source of our freedom, our power, and our responsibility is, quite simply, the free market. Economic freedom is the freedom we exercise most often and to the greatest extent. Freedom of speech is important. If you have anything to say, I check the Internet. Nobody does. Uh, freedom of belief is important. If you believe in anything, I, I've watched reality TV. I can't believe it. Uh, freedom of assembly is important. If you have an assembly to go to the way, way we do, but most people go to the mall, and at the mall, they exercise economic freedom. We have the cow of economic freedom. Do we take the cow to market and trade her for the magic beans of bailout and stimulus? When we climb that magic beanstalk, we're going to find a giant government at the top. You know? Now, are we going to be as lucky as Jack and the beanstalk was? See, I, I'm, I'm not sure that Jack himself was that lucky with his giant killing. You know, Jack the giant killer. That's, that's Jack's version, you know. My guess is that Jack spent years being investigated by giant subcommittees, you know. And now Jack's paying a giant tax on his beanstalk bonus, with his salary being determined by a compensation committee that is 40 feet tall, you know. Free market, it's not a creed or an ideology that we libertarians want Americans to take on faith. No. The free market is simply a measurement. The free market tells us what people are willing to pay for a given thing at a given moment. That's all the free market does. The free market is a bathroom scale. We may not like what we see when we step on the bathroom scale, but we cannot pass a law making ourselves weigh 145, and President Obama thinks we can. Free market gives us only one piece of information, but it is important information. We ignore it at our peril, the way the leaders of the old Soviet bloc did. They lost the Cold War, not because of troops or tanks or Star Wars missile shields. They lost the Cold War because of Bulgarian blue jeans. The free market was attempting to inform the Kremlin that Bulgarian blue jeans didn't fit. They were ugly and ill-made. Nobody wanted them at any price. People wouldn't wear Bulgarian blue jeans, literally, not to save their lives. But the Kremlin didn't listen, and the Berlin Wall came down. You know? There is, however, just one problem with escaping from, from, from the kill-screw-marry of politics. If our nation becomes a libertarian nation, this will deprive politics of all of its tools and instruments. If we succeed in getting people to quit killing, stop screwing around, and start taking the troths they've plighted in life seriously, there will be no room left for politics. So how will politics be able to give us our rights to three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree? How will politics be able to make things fair? Now, this may be a valid concern, but I am immune to it. I am immune to it because I have a 12-year-old daughter, and that is all I hear. That's not fair. 
that's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. All my friends have an iPad. It's not fair. You let my little sister do such and such. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. One day I just snapped. I said to her, honey, you're cute. That's not fair. You're smart. That's not fair. Your family is pretty well off. That's not fair. You were born in the United States of America. That's not fair. Darling, you had better get down on your knees and pray to God that things don't start getting fair for you. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's everything I know. Um, but, um, but if anybody has a, 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 a question, uh, I'll make up some other stuff. Uh, I see a question right, right back there. And there's a microphone for, with which you can ask your question. Thanks for work. It's good to see you again here. And I wanted to thank you again for the opportunity to speak with you on your last book that came out uh, about the cars. And I, You're very welcome. Yeah. I see some of the central themes that have been repeated here tonight. Were you in any way um, involved in the civil rights movement? In, in, when Obviously, you were too young to really be fully involved in it. But in retrospect, how do you feel about what happened during the 60s versus what we have now? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, was, I, I wasn't involved in the, in, in the civil rights movement, like being a freedom writer or anything like that. Of course, I was an avid supporter. I was a leftist at the time. And I do think that it's one, like, little red badge of courage that, that the left can present us with, is that they were out front, uh, maybe not for the best of motives always, but nonetheless, they were out front on, on, on the civil rights question. And it is always to be borne in mind, you know, that, 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 that one thing that sets us apart from some people in the conservative movement is uh, our belief in rule of law and our belief in the equality of people, more, more precisely, our belief in the equality of everyone before the law. I mean, everyone must be equal before the law. That's actually even more important than whether the law is good, is that we all be... Uh, most important thing is that we be equal before the law and that we have some measure of input as to what that law uh, uh, can be. Uh, it, it, what it is, and 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 that 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 existence of law, the equality before the law, the input in, 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 into the law, uh, these are the things that actually create the necessity, the logical necessity for democracy, and this is really at the core of our beliefs. And there, there, you know, there are people who are on our side on many issues who are not as firm, alas, uh, as 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 I think we are about that. Sir. Mr. O'Rourke, I remember uh, you spoke in this auditorium at the beginning of the Iraq war and you said you were in favor of it. Uh, do you still feel the same way about it? Um, no, my, I, I, my uh, uh, you know, to use uh, uh, what Keynes said, you know, when my information changes, my opinion changes, you know, what do you do? <laughs> um, uh, I, I have considerable more reservations about the Iraq war now than I had then. Uh, we only knew what we knew. And, you know, people uh, write up the uh, food chain to uh, uh, Mohammed El-Bardi, you know, over at the U.N., 
believed that there were weapons of mass destruction. That wasn't really why I was in favor of the, of the Iraq War. I had been, I'd been in the Gulf War. I'd, I'd covered the Gulf War. I had seen what Saddam Hussein did to Kuwait and the people of Kuwait. And I felt this was a very, very bad man. And I felt the fundamental question was, is he a bad man? Does he do bad things? Does he have the resources to do more bad things? And that was three yeses and you're out. You know? And so, so I, I, I was in favor of the, uh, 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 of the Iraq war. However, I was also in Baghdad uh, about two days after Baghdad fell. Uh, I, I arrived in Baghdad and, um, you know, we, 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 we violated the Powell rule. Uh, we broke it, but we failed to buy it. Uh, there was no water. The water system was not operating. There was no electricity. But, I mean, no water. I mean, that just says it all. This is a desert country. There was no water in Baghdad. Millions of people in no water. There was no electricity. The sewage system was going to pieces. There was no food. There, there was no provision for medical care. We had, just, we had, done, had taken large chunks out of the city done a lot of damage in, in, in taking over the city, and we were providing no aid whatsoever to the people of the city. They were not initially that unhappy to see us. Uh, I walked around without a guard, without, an, without a weapon. Uh, I, I walked around Baghdad by myself. You know, I got a few ugly looks. I got some waves and smiles. I got some, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm not sure looks. Uh, but I never felt myself to be in danger. And it wasn't until the people of Iraq fully realized that these these weird alien creatures who had arrived in their country all dressed up like, uh, uh, you know, like the soldiers in, in, in Star Wars, you know, uh, were uh, hadn't brought anything with them, you know, hadn't hadn't brought any. Uh, alternative. They were they were plenty glad to to be rid of Saddam Hussein and uh, of the of the parasitic and vicious members of the Ba'ath Party. So um, uh, you know that uh, aftermath to the Iraq War uh, modified my feeling in retrospect. Modified my feeling of support for the Iraq War. Probably if I were a smarter person or a more diligent person, or if I'd done due diligence, as they say in business, I would have realized that we were going into Iraq. So poorly prepared, not so poorly prepared from our point of view, but so poorly prepared for the, from the point of view of the Iraqi people. So, Sir. Just to follow up on your, uh, what you just said, how do you reconcile that with your analysis previously about the give me rights versus get out of here rights? It seems like, um, you know, providing the Iraqis with electricity, providing them with water, all that other nation-building infrastructure stuff seems to fall on the side of give me rights rather than get out of here. Well, you're right. You're correct. I mean, it certainly does. You know, and if uh, if we had invaded America, uh, 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 but we didn't. <laughs> I mean, I don't. You know, if if our government had invaded us, and I suppose some would say they had in a way. You know, they they would be under a certain obligation to uh, uh, to to provide for our welfare. I speak of it only really. I mean, I speak of it partly from a humanitarian point of view. I mean, I simply. You know, I didn't like the suffering that I saw. Uh, but I also speak of it as a pragmatic point of view. You know, if you're going to invade another country, you know, no matter how good your reasons may be, and let's say, let's say for argument's sake that the reasons were much better than they in fact were. Uh, let's, let's, let's say that they were like Nazi Germany invasion, uh, 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 level of reasons. You still, 
if you want that uh, uh, that invasion and that occupation to be a success, if you want to have your way, you want the Germans to quit being Nazis. You know, you you want the you want the Bathists to be out of power uh, and stay out of power, and don't want anything anybody bad to come in and, and and fill that power vacuum. Then it is incumbent upon you, just from a practical point of view, to um, uh, bring some goodies in your Easter basket. You know, so. sir. Uh, I was struck in your presentation that obviously in the day after an election it's fun to think about our elected officials, but as I recalled in your book Parliament of Horrors, when you got to the end of the book, the Parliament of Horrors were all of us and everything that we thought now had become our right. And it seems to me that there's sort of a question of, okay, if you have a house of, quote, representatives and we're all out trying to hang on to what we like, uh, what would you expect that House of Representatives to do? Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the fault of bad government from the president right, right on down is squarely on our shoulders as American citizens. We elected these people, you know, and we elected these people because gimme rights are quite enticing. Uh, they, they really are. And that was why, and that's why the final sentence of Parliament of Horrors is the horrors are us. I mean, we, we control. This is a democracy. Uh, we do control this country, and we have been willing to give away a lot of our freedoms in return for what we perceived uh, as being benefits. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me about the Tea Party movement is that this is a grassroots movement going around asking for less from government. You know, this has come up. This has not come down from the elites. This has come up from the bottom. This, we're being our own Sarkozy's with this. We are going to ourselves and saying, no, no, you can't, you can't retire at 28. You can't have the government pay 165% of your college tuition. You, can't, you cannot have all of these benefits without there being enormous costs to our individual freedom and, of course, costs to, to our economy, all sorts of blowback uh, from this. And so that's why uh, you know, is the is the uh, 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 is the Tea Party movement uh, a, a perfect thing? Of course not. It's a big tree. Big trees attract squirrels. I mean, there are some you know people out there that you know. I mean, uh, Christine O'Donnell. I am not a witch. You know. I mean, I, I was a little amazed at that. On the other hand, I thought to myself, has Hillary Clinton ever cleared that up? You know. I mean, come on, let's be fair. Um, but no, I think that, you know. I think it's quite extraordinary. In fact, I was talking to a group. I don't know, like a couple months back, about that, asking, answering a question about uh, the Tea Party movement. And I said, "When in the history of American populist movements has there been a populist movement that wanted less from the government? Populist movements always want some positive benefit from the government. Now, sometimes." They are more than entitled to that uh, positive benefit. The civil rights movement was a populist movement. The benefit that they wanted from government was equality before the law. They wanted the law to be enforced. And that, but it was, nonetheless, they were asking the government to do something. And, and the fact that they were right, uh, uh, it was good. You know, we've also had uh, plenty of populist movements where uh, we've had xenophobic populist movements. We've had the agrarian populists, you know, who wanted basically uh, a free more. Mortgages. They, they wanted 
the bubble that we just went through. You know, they they they, they were agitating for for a, a sort of mortgage bubble back ba- back in the nineteenth century. Uh, so we've had all sorts of populist movements. They've always been asking the government for something, and here for the first time we have a populist movement that's asking the government for less. Uh, now, are they perfectly cogent about that? Are they always sure about just what less they want? You know, are they are they are, are they completely clear about how we would uh, 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 roll back the size and scope of government? Well, no, uh, they're not because they're amateurs. They're 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 they're, they're regular people, and, and and this is a new thing. You know, this is only like about twenty two months old, and but I'm still impressed. And so I was talking to this group about that and saying, you know, show me in the history uh, of America a populist movement that hasn't wanted something from government. Someone at the back of the room said, the Whiskey Rebellion. I said, well, I was in favor of that, too. (laughs) Back there. Hello. Thanks for being here. Um, Welcome. I perceive, rightly or wrongly, that there's kind of this hole in libertarian thought in that um, for all this freedom that that libertarians um, uh, kind of want there to be for me as an individual, that there's no room for the responsibility that you talk about and there's no grounding or reference point in the social contract. Um, uh, I think some social conservatives would like it to be religion and um, the establishment clause or lack thereof, uh, uh, you know, kind of puts limits on that. Where, where's the morality? Now, I actually think that most people who are serious in their libertarian thinking are pretty good on the responsibility issue, uh, which has been summed up as uh, you have the right to do anything you want. And you also have the obligation to take the consequences. You know, I mean, I, I, I think we're, 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 we're pretty square uh, uh, on that. If I had an argument with libertarianism, I, I, my argument with libertarianism would not be um, uh, uh, abnegation of responsibility. It would be um, a sometimes relentless application of logic to politics. And, and, and politics, you know, Michael Oakeshott uh, uh, made this argument, I think, very forcefully, if you can get through his prose, which is very difficult. But he made, he made this argument quite forcefully back at the end of the 40s, beginning of the 50s, that, um, that, that, that politics is not a fully rational uh, 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 endeavor. I mean, politics is simply how we get along with each other in a group that has that, that either we've landed in or we've selected to be in. Uh, it's simply a way of people getting along with each other, and that we tend to think, especially because we have that wonderful example of our founding fathers and the founding documents and so on, we have a tendency as Americans to think that politics has a beginning, and that uh, and, and Oakeshott uh, pointed out that no, uh, uh, politics does not have a beginning, that the social contract is a kind of intellectual construct that we've made. When was it exactly that man-apes, you know, came down from the trees uh, before they could talk and, and, and agreed on how many grunts you get and how many grunts I get on, on the social contract? No, this has evolved uh, uh, organically, and Oakeshott also made, made the point that there's no no, no teleology in, 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 in politics is not does not have an object. It does not have a purpose. I mean, it's up to us to give it its object and purpose. It uh, it, it as a, a as a, as an organic matter of human behavior, uh, uh, politics has neither a beginning nor an end nor, nor nor a purpose. It's simply the way that people get along, manage to get arrange their affairs, 
with other people. And sometimes we as libertarians have a tendency to ask uh, for a, a, a more logical uh, construction of politics than, 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 than humans are probably actually capable of, you know. Uh, let's see, uh, sir. I'm trying to trying to predict where the microphone will go. Let's send it down here next. Okay. My name is Terrence Byrne. I'm unaffiliated. Mr. O'Rourke, my question is, what would you hope for, and what would you expect from a President Sarah Palin? Ooh, uh, what would I hope for, and what would I expect from a President Sarah Palin? Uh, you know, I would hope that she wouldn't try and think things through. Talk about applications of reason, because I don't think she's real strong in that department. I, I'm not sure I, I, that I am at, you know, greatly at variance with Sarah Palin's, uh, uh, with, with most of her values, you know. But, I mean, I think that uh, she is, uh, uh, you know, it's politics as showmanship. I mean, as a politician, I think she's got a great career coming in talk radio. You know, I, 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 and I hope not in the White House. You know, it's just it is, uh, you know, it really takes a um, uh, the, the the view that I think is probably you know the views of politics and the views of economics that that are represented in this room um, are 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 demanding views of politics, demanding views of economics. Uh, they they're they're fact based. Uh, uh, they're 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 not uh, fanciful. Uh, we're not we're not people who are, are creating fairy castles, political fairy castles in the air. Uh, none, nonetheless, um, um, uh, the, the political position that we want to sell to people is not an easy sale. It means standing up in front of people and saying, "I can give you less." I can give you. It means telling the truth to people. Imagine a politician who told the truth to people. Imagine a politician who stood up and said, "No." I can't fix public education because the problem isn't lack of funding. The problem isn't overcrowding in the classrooms. It's not lack of computer equipment. It's not the teacher's union. The problem is your damn kids, you know? (laughs) Imagine a politician who said something like that, you know? And we tend to go to the people and tell them the truth, and, and it's uncomfortable. You know, it's easier to tell a lie. So you need somebody very able and skilled. And that was what we prized about Ronald Reagan. Were we behind Ronald Reagan 100% on everything? Was Ronald Reagan never wrong? Were there times that Ronald Reagan was not as active as he could have been or, or, or lazy or, or, or even political and, and, and cynical? Sure. But he had that capacity to explain to people why we had to face facts, why we had to do things, you know, why we couldn't have pie in the sky, why he couldn't promise ridiculous things that couldn't be delivered. And uh, I just don't see Sarah Palin having that kind of intellectual throw weight. And we've learned now, and, and, you know, we used to make fun of Ronald Reagan for not being very smart. It turns out not to have been true. The guy was quite smart. Uh, and, of course, he had a tremendous gift for explanation. And he had the kind of good humor and good good grace um, to make this work. And I'm not seeing any of that stuff from Sarah Palin. You know, I mean, I'd love to be proved wrong. You know, I mean, maybe she is a hidden genius, you know, so I'm not seeing it so far. You know. Sir. Thanks. I'm fascinated by the use of humor to actually make a difference. 
And uh, like you, I went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Oh, and uh, how's your liver? (laughs) Okay. Liver transplants are (laughs) big in the alumni news. (laughs) It's all section devoted. The uh, the example I would give you is political correctness has run amok there, and you were a redskin. Now I was a red hawks. Yeah. Uh, Something like that was a losing battle, never, never really to be fought by anyone. Can humor make a difference in that, and can it make a difference in advancing libertarian ideas, really? Uh, Sometimes I think it can. You know, I mean, it uh, it depends upon the situation. There there are some things you're obviously going to get in trouble making fun of, Katrina. You know, I mean, that's not going to work, you know. Um, I, I, I gave into it myself a couple times, you know, and you really don't get very far of that, you know, this, the, you know, the, um, we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> I was going to give an example and I just decided I get myself in more trouble, but, um, yeah, of course, of course you can do it. As a matter of fact, we were doing it with the, the, uh, Miami, uh, uh, Miami University named after the Miami Indian tribe, uh, has been called time out of mind. The teams have been called, uh, the Redskins. And that back beginning in the sixties when I was there and for like 20 years, that argument went on, people began to take umbrage. Uh, and so the Miami uh, tribe, uh, uh, who uh, uh, through no doing of their own live in Oklahoma now and not in Ohio, um, but nonetheless the Miami tribe has maintains a relationship with uh, Miami University, and, and any any kid from the Miami tribe um, uh, who wants to go to college has a free ride at, at Miami University. Uh, at any rate. Uh, uh, we went to the chief of the Miami tribe and said, well, how do you feel about this? And he said he could care less. You know, I mean, how does he care what the football team is called? But anyway, on the argument went, and so they, you know, and, and, and uh, it wasn't effective, but at the time, I remember uh, putting forward, my friends and I put forward that, uh, look, we gotta, if we're not going to be the Redskins, we got to go the whole way and be like the Dust Bunnies, you know, or like, you know, the, the fluffy little pow- uh, uh, flower petals, you know, or uh, uh, something uh, – uh, truly, but you know Reagan, Reagan really, uh, uh, you know, just had this. Uh, and, and, and and I will go back to Katrina for one moment because the, when Katrina happened, I remembered the words from Reagan saying, "The ten most frightening words in the English language are I'm from the federal government and I'm here to help.'" You know, it's, that was you know, say no more. Um, so yes, I, 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 you know, I think that that's it's uh, it has to be it has to be used with some caution. But uh, yeah, I think it is a. I hope it's a useful tool. Otherwise, I'm out of work. Two more questions. Two more questions. Man in the blue shirt, suspenders, on right on the corner there. Thank you, sir. Your wit does make politics light for the rest of us. But after 40 years of fighting this fight on behalf of your ideals, do you get frustrated? Does a humorist like yourself get grumpy? No. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I hate politics. I just I, I hate politics. For forty some years, uh, forty years of writing about politics, and, and I, I realized, you know, that I'm having about as much fun as a grizzly bear getting a bikini wax. You know, I mean, I, I no, I, I do not like politics, and I don't just hate bad politics. I hate good politics too. I hate all politics. You know, I mean, it's just like I thing is, I even hate democracy. I know we have to have it. You know, it's a logical uh, outgrowth of equality before the law and influence on those laws and so on, but. 
think about like about applying politics to every aspect of your life. You know, think about deciding what's for dinner by family secret ballot. You know, I got three kids and three dogs. We would be having Fruit Loops and spoiled meat for dinner. You know, and think about like if our clothing were selected by the by 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 by, by the voting process. You know, by the majority of shoppers, uh, and that would be teenage girls, right? It would be the majority of shoppers. Dick Cheney would have, would have spent two two terms as vice president with his midriff exposed, you know, if, if clothing were chosen by the democratic process. So, yeah, I, I do think that one of the roles of libertarianism is to act as a sort of room deodorizer to keep the stink of politics out of homeschool and office, you know, including the doctor's office. One more. Sir. Hello. Um, what prospects do you see for the future of libertarianism in younger generations like millennials like me? Well, I, you know, I, I think that libertarianism has always had a sort of Proposition 19 appeal to the young, you know. Uh, and it was interesting to me that Proposition 19 didn't uh, pass in, 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 in California. And I think it was a case of their token up before they went in the voting booth, you know. <laughs> Getting in there already to pass Proposition 19 and going, wow, did you ever really look at a ballot? <laughs> it's like writing on it and little boxes. <laughs> yeah, so I always, uh, you know, when you're voting on that, wait till after you vote, you know, before. Um, the, uh, uh, no, I think that, uh, uh, that, that, you know, the, that, that libertarianism, I, I think like, like, like me, when I was young, I think the main consideration of kids is freedom. And one of the things we have to realize about kids is the extent to which they have lived, grown up in, um, uh, uh, in a collective environment. I mean, kids, in a weird sort of way, are natural little Marxist. You know, there's that, that, that from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Where's the one place that actually happens, that actually works? The family, right? So, I mean, kids come out of this sort of commie family uh, thing, you know, and they go to these, you know, often very left-wing teachers at school. But even if a school weren't left-wing, it is regimented. You know, it, it, it is a collective enterprise. You know, and they're given all this sorts of baloney. They do this sort of, uh, of mandatory volunteer work that they have to do, you know, and it's sort of, you know, and, and, and it's kind of, there's a lot of talk about, you know, it's not whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game when it's obviously whether you win or lose. And uh, all sorts of baloney, you know. And then they go off to college and they get this, like, Freedom, you know, to get naked, you know, and uh, and responsibility. Yeah, to turn the music down after three a.m., you know. So a little, you know, and they're and they're living in this life where their only possessions are like their like like computer, you know, and, and their stereo speakers, you know, and, and maybe a car. And so it's very very easy for to be a leftist when, when when you're in your late teens and your early 20s and i think that you know the liber, libertarian ideas about freedom uh let's maybe hold off and explaining to them the responsibility part <laughs> they'll find out soon enough but libertarian ideas about freedom uh, is can be the kind of wedge in uh it was, certainly was one of the things that when when the, the the left with whom i identified in the 1960s because the left was anti-war because the left was anti-racism because the left was for free waterbeds and bongs for everybody you know uh, of course i identified with it you know but when they started to get scary 
when the weather weather underground came in and started blowing stuff up, when Bill Ayers, our president's friend, uh, uh, you know, began really acting up, uh, 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 yeah, I started to go, wait, I didn't sign on for this. You know, I signed on for the bongs and the waterbeds. You know, I mean, what, what's this about blowing people up, you know? And, and I began to see this totalitarian side to the left. And I think that was the beginning of my journey away from that was, uh, and, and so, yes, I think libertarianism has a great potential appeal, uh, has great appeal now and, and an even larger potential appeal. Thank you. Thank you, uh, PJ. As, as George Will said in the column recently, the best uh, campaign uh, slogan for this last campaign was uh, less we can. And uh, uh, if you like PJ's speech, and I know you did, uh, it's available on uh, Cato.org uh, with a lot of other cool libertarian stuff. So I hope you go to that site. And now we can go upstairs for reception and get that good deal on the book.